Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing. Well, hello everybody and uh, welcome of course to the uh, Motorsport Podcast on a lovely misty morning in the City of London. We have a very special guest with us today, as usual, of course, being Motorsport Podcast. I'm not going to tell you who he is right now, but I am going to give you a clue. He started out as a marshal at Goodwood and thought, yeah, I could, I could do that. I could go out there and do that. So he got himself a Lotus 7 and he won his first ever race in the pouring rain at Goodwood. He went on to do Formula 3. He went to Ferrari to drive for the Grand Prix team and went on to win the World Sports Car Championship and the Le Mans 24 Hours more times than I can remember. We'll be talking to him in just a moment. But let me first of all tell you about our subscription offer this month. If you subscribe to Motorsport this month, you will also receive Peter War's book, Team Lotus, My View from the Pit Wall. Highly recommended. Um, and this features an introduction from our own Simon Taylor. You can get this book, which is worth £19.99, when you subscribe for 12 or 40, no, wrong, for 12 or 24 editions of the magazine. It's available to new subscribers wherever you are in the world. So if you're in the Pentagon, as we know some of you are, or Mongolia, or wherever you are, you can take up this offer. All subscribers, existing and new, can now receive an enhanced digital copy for free on their iPad. Yup. We're very proud of our iPad edition. It's fantastic. Uh, so log on to our website at motorsportmagazine.com or call us on 020-7349-8472. That's 020-7349-8472 to subscribe to Motorsport today. Please do that. It's a big help to us. And have a look at the iPad. It's fantastic. So, who is our mystery guest? Well, I'm sure you've all guessed. He is Derek Bell. So welcome, Derek. And you've just come back from 10 days on safari in Africa, you lucky man. Yes, I know. What else do you do in the winter? We used to do the Tasman series. We can't do it anymore. So we go on safari instead. Yeah. Um, Derek, we're going to come to some of your past achievements in in a moment but I just want to get the ball rolling by talking to you about the new world endurance championship I wondered what your thoughts on it are and of course whether you know the impact of it has been lessened by Peugeot pulling out to be honest I don't know too much about the world the new endurance championship I know there's a European endurance ELMS or something but I I, I get a bit lost as to what's happening because it was so simple when there was a world championship and American championship and knew what they were well let me help you out there's, there's going to be a new world endurance sports car championship well you call it a sports car championship if you like um, which is, sounds on the surface to be like a move back to the great old days well, I think it's wonderful if it does. The sad thing is if, you know, with, with Peugeot pulling out, uh, you always need these, the manufacturers in there. I mean, if they're going to come in, they should stay. And if they're not going to stay, in, they should, it, you don't need them. Because what it does, I think, is it upsets the smaller teams. And you're not, for example, like Pescarolo out there with his team. And the poor bloke knows that he's never going to get sponsorship or he's never going to win a race because he's got Audi in front with three cars and Peugeot. So the poor guy tries to get sponsorship, which is massive, and you're not going to get it. So, but you can't expect manufacturers to stay there forever. But it is a bit much when they pull out at such a, 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 a you know, critical time, so close to the season. 
Sure, sure. It's kind of knocked the stuffing out of Lamar a bit, hasn't it? Yes, it must do. It must do. Lamar always somehow manages to hang in there. That They get, still get their number of cars they want. They'll still have a good race. But, uh, you know, without Peugeot pushing Audi, it could be a bit of a, a drag, one mm. might say. Mm. I should have mentioned, by the way, that we have Nigel Roebuck with us, of course, as ever, and our editor, Damien Smith, and uh, Ed Foster, who very kindly prepares all this for me. So he's, he's my favourite. Um, before we bring in the others, though, can I just say, Derek, I mean, actually, I think it is considered to be the place to go, this new championship. I mean, people like Sebastian Buemi are going there. You've heard of him, I assume. Um, and Nick Heidfeld. So, you know, it... it could it be, do you, I mean, somebody like you must think, wow, you know, let's get back to the great days of sports cars. Yeah, but, it, well, I mean, it, that's what it was like when all all drivers could be in it. I mean, gosh, I remember racing against Senna, and, I mean, all these guys were racing in sports cars here and there, and that's what made it so exciting. And, and that, that, But, again, it, I still harp on about it every time somebody talks about the past, and I know you're going to be doing features on Group C in the future. But, you know, what really made those world championships was Porsche and Porsche supplied 956s and 962s and for a 250 or $350,000 you could buy one and form a team and go racing and it's you can't do it you can't buy a Peugeot and you can't buy an Audi and of course the advantage is that, that we used to be you know that you know Bob Aiken in America or here over here Richard Lloyd or you name them or, you know Reinhold Yerst or uh, Walter Bruin or whoever it is they would buy cars they'd modify them they'd run their teams and bring in drivers from all over the world to race and unfortunately, it doesn't happen now. And I think we always overlook what Porsche have done to, make, to bring sports cars to where it was. And in my opinion, until we have Porsche or a manufacturer providing cars for every Tom, Dick and Harry to buy, then I think it's going to be a difficult championship because you don't want a manufacturer running away with it. Would you I buy one? What? Would you buy one? I'd drive one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean... No, of course I would buy one, but I mean, are you doing, there are people that will, because people want to race, but you know, it's rather like Pescarolo, I mean, he, you know, he's running, he's running, he knows he can't finish above sixth place, basically, mm. until they fall out. Three did already, so he's up to fourth, but he's looking good. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that Porsche era, which I call it that, the main Group C era, bringing in, I mean, you think who was in there? There was Nissan, there was Toy Toyota, there was Mazda, there was Jaguar, just to name the three that I can think of, that came in and still gave a good battle and took the, took the races to Porsche. But Porsche gave everybody the chance to go and race, and there's nobody out there that provides the cars, and I think that is so sad. I mean, I always thought that our Audi, you know, when they came in with the R8, goodness knows how many years ago now, but when Audi came with the R8, they should have made them more available to people. So I know, you know, I remember somebody, particularly an American chap, I remember he, um, he, he, he wanted to buy one, but it was so astronomic at that <laughs> time, you know, for an engine, a rebuild program yeah. of a million dollars for the year, that sort of thing, and you go, whoa, just for the engines, <laughs> you know, and uh, the people didn't buy it, so they went off and bought Intrepids and Spices and these sort of things, which at least they knew they could run, they weren't going to win, but they'll be out there, but I just think, as it was back in the 80s, was a great era, in wh whatever wants to think about Audi and Peugeot out there, they are showing that how strong they are, but I don't think there's anybody below them that can compete. 
Well, I suppose you've got to say, haven't you, what is Audi going to prove by coming first, second and third at Le Mans in 2012? Well, they did it umpteen years before, didn't they? Yeah. Well, they did, but that they... Was when, that, that, cause that was when Jabby Cronbach stopped going to Le Mans, having gone to Le Mans every year of his life, pretty much, and he just said... Uh, it was now be a, a Volkswagen parade. I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Terry, what do you think of the the Audi Peugeot era? Now it's come to an end with Peugeot's withdrawal. It was a it was a great era we had there for a while. Well, it was a great three. I think three years. I mean, it was fantastic. But but what I always love about it is that you knew that Audi were going to be strong because they developed the car and perfected it. And then in come Peugeot, and it was you know I I sort of been there in a way. And and they do all their testing at Paul Ricard and they do hours and hours of twenty four hour to bring the car up to speed which we all did and it was very exciting and very wearing and they come through and they they give Audi a good run and of course there's various reasons that one has a problem and the other doesn't and you I mean who know who was going to win it was a real lottery I always thought but um, you know then of course sadly Peugeot aren't there so we're back to Audi and they could still trip over at themselves and things do go wrong in 24 hours as we know yeah I was, I was speaking to someone the other day um, from the World and Juniors Championship and they said that uh, we've got to obviously thank Toyota for coming in and entering more races and more cars and s supporting it better. We've also got to thank Audi a lot for taking a huge performance cut to try and help Toyota be on a par with them. And he said they've actually been amazing because I don't think Audi want to go out there and come first, second, third with no one else there. So um, hopefully it should be better than we hoped, I think. But it's, it's always said that you can't win Le Mans in your first year. So Toyota coming in, we can't really expect them to, uh, to push Audi that hard, can we? No, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the fact is that Audi, as you rightly say, had, have sort of said, well, we'll back down on our power, but that means they can turn it up if they have to. <laughs> and uh, so uh, let's not be fooled by that. Uh, we will win at any chance, we will. But, um, but I think that, um, but I, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, the fact that Audi are prepared to do that, you've got, you know, Toyota coming in, but it will, it, we, John Wire always used to say it takes three years to win. That was before, of course, all the computers where you could basically do 24 hours all the year round on your computer. But in those days, the first year to finish, the second year in the top three or four, and the third year you could probably win it. And most people did that. And I think even in the Bentley thing, whatever one likes to look at that program, it did take three years. However, it didn't take Peugeot three years, it took them two, didn't it? But that you know, but I think modern technology allows them to do that. And actually, when I mean Porsche are coming back, what 2014? Yes, aren't they? Yeah. And I would just assume they would be competitive from the word go. Absolutely. Being Porsche, yeah. would you you think the same? Uh, totally and utterly. I mean, I can't wait to see what they come back with. I find it a bit interesting that the same group bring in two cars to compete against each other with you know within Porsche and with Audi. Sure. But um, <coughs> I just. Uh, the, the other thing is I feel that Porsche should be there. I think yeah. the, the fact that, I know Audi will get upset with me, but, you know, Audi is not what we know as a sports car. They've really spent a fortune all worldwide to try and improve their, their image worldwide away from being a wonderful, wonderful, technically correct street car into being a, a car that young people want. And now pe they are, people are aware of it with the R8 and the road car and R10 whatever. But um, at the same time, you know, you've got... Um, They've got Porsche coming in who've always had sports cars and that's where they should be and when they drifted off to do Indy cars and this sort of thing and went off to do Formula One. Started building trucks. That's right, well. yes exactly. <laughs> um, that's right. Uh, well, well, they, they go and do that but the place that's home for them, the place that, that everybody recognises is them in sports cars.
and I'm so delighted they're coming back. Probably what we should point out at this uh, juncture, while we're on the subject of uh, Audi and uh, German cars, um, Derek Bell is a Bentley dealer. He has a dealership in Florida and he has a dealership in Nashville. Just thought I'd get that out of the way. Part of it, Rod. So I don't own the whole thing. I'm the, the three partners in it, but um, I do own a little bit of it. And it, it's great fun. But, you know, I've been with Bentley a while now, 12 years. So, you know, I thought it's probably good to have a bit of an investment in it as well. Well, quite. Well, the way they're selling, I think yeah. that's very sensible, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 OK. Um, sorry, shall we, can we make a huge jump now? Um, to Formula One, partly because we know lots of people listening like Formula One, and partly because you were there, Derek. I mean, it's amazing how it came about, isn't it? You, I mean, okay, you were very quick in Formula Three, you impressed a lot of people, and, and Formula Two, and then suddenly you get this phone call from a place called Modena in Italy. And I, I remember my girl telling me that you didn't even bloody well know where Modena was. <laughs> well, I never thought I'd be going there. Um, you know, it's beyond, beyond a fantasy for me to race for Ferrari. But, um, and, uh, you know, when the call came through, it was quite remarkable because the same week I got a call to go to Cooper. Now, you can imagine how <laughs> difficult that decision was. Um, but um, nonetheless, it was nice to have... The problem was that when John Cooper's team contacted me, it was to be a Formula One driver, and when Ferrari contacted me, to be a Formula Two driver with a view to going to Formula One if I showed my... Ta you know, that I was good enough for it. And I'd only done, uh, you know, what, I'd only done three or all races in F2 uh, that year before, you know, they were on the phone to me. And I would have gone there sooner, but Jackie X crashed the car at Crystal Palace that I was going to test at Goodwood. He used to do that sort of thing, so it just pissed me <laughs> off, actually. But, <laughs> so I couldn't get in the team. But no, I, I adore the guy. But anyway, so I thought, well, that's it. Derek Bell's luck strikes again, you know, back to the farm. But, um, I did then get the call, you know, please come to, to Monza and test. And that's where I went. And of course, um, tested with a load of, I think, probably unknown Italian drivers, because I think Mr. Ferrari wanted me and he just threw me in against a load of people just for the hell of it to make it look good. But no, there were a few better names there, I think, that came through ultimately. So um, and then, of course, I went down to the factory to meet him after the test. You've got to tell us about that, please. I mean, no, really, because I think, you know, not that many people who love motor racing met Mr. Ferrari. No, I mean, I often say, you know, I might not have made any money out of, out of Formula One, like Michael Schumacher, but at least I met Enzo. And I don't know if that ranks as, as being a billionaire, but um, it's certainly, to me, it was very, very important because we didn't do racing to make money. We did it because we wanted to win races and race different cars. So I, we went, I went down to the factory and um, stayed at the Real Fini. I won't go into that story because it's a bit sort of <laughs> promiscuous. And my first, you can imagine I was 27, my first night in Italy, sitting in the hotel, the Real Fini. I'm about to be a Formula 2 and a Formula 1 driver in Italy for Ferrari. And a girl walks in the bar. So you can imagine the activity that took place, particularly as I couldn't speak Italian. Uh, so I had to speak I'm French. I'm sure you saw But I did manage. Until, she, until as we approached my room, she says, how much are you going to pay me? And uh, <laughs> quanto pagare. And that was the end of that. So uh, talk about coitus interruptus. That completely did it for me. Mind you, I lay there in bed all night, having had about three black coffees downstairs, thinking, why did I let that chance go at any price? you know anyway shall so we move on, move on well he wanted the story he said look we don't want to be boring because Formula One's getting boring let's get into it so uh, we next morning went out to the factory 
at Marinello and um, walking uh, I was walking around with this sort of shorter gentleman than me and uh, he was one of the secretaries there and I and there was no people working so I said well where is everybody and he said um, he said, oh, it, today's a national holiday. I thought, that's unusual, it's a Wednesday. But I got to know over the ensuing 18 months that at, um, but a uh, national holiday meant that it was a strike. And because uh, it happened quite frequently in Italy, but you're never sure what it was, so you just went home. So I'm walking around the factory, and I have to say, it was the most intriguing walk. Um, you know, you can, I mean, in literally where the engines are built, there was a billet of steel, which came out the other end as a 12-cylinder crankshaft. I mean, that was it. And remember, that engine, that still went in the same engine as the streetcars within reason, because everything was V12, apart from Formula 2. And, um, and so we just strolled around looking at stuff, and it was intriguing to be at this phenomenal place, which was pretty basic, but was Ferrari. And, uh, and, and we're walking along, suddenly around the corner, sort of about 50 yards away, walks this very tall, elegant chap with a jacket, you know, raincoat draped over his shoulders, uh, tinted glasses, his hair immaculately swept back, and sort of, he looked about six foot tall. Beside him is a smaller gentleman, and the guy with me says, oh, here comes El Comandatore now. He is the one on the left. <laughs> as, as if I had any doubts to which one was Enzo, you know. And... Um, and as he walked up towards me, I had this amazing sight that I'm sure no other driver's ever had. And there's nobody in the factory except for Enzo walking up with his, all his streetcars on assembly lines either side of him, reds and yellows. And he walked up between them. And that was my first image I ever had of Enzo Ferrari. And um, we got talking and um, he said, let's go to, to lunch. So we went to the Cavallino over the road. And all he really wanted to talk about was Jochen Rint. It was quite interesting, actually. Really? Yeah. And um, I, you know, he said, what do you think of Jochen Rint? Because obviously he would like to have got him in his team, which I wish to God he had, because he probably wouldn't have had his accent that way. But, and um, anyway, that was it. And we talked over lunch and things and what, where he was going and what he wanted me to do. And I can't remember if Gotzi was there then. He's uh, you know, at that, that juncture, uh, his sort of the manager of the team at that point, probably. But um, we just discussed things, and that was it. We had a lovely lunch, and, a, and, and a sort of got in my car and went home. <laughs> but they wanted me to sign a contract, and I didn't, because I'd read all these stories about, you know, F Ferrari kills his drivers. And, the, and this, I mean, there was a hideous thing in the papers about a month or two before it, and it showed these blazing flames. As I think it was when Bandini went, crashed, and all that sort of thing. And I'm going, oh, bloody hell. And I thought, the family can't take this back home, you know. Remember, we didn't have managers in those days, and I was a really simple 27 year old and uh, so um, anyway uh, I, I went home sort of going my god I could drive for Ferrari and of course the next day I was testing for Cooper at Silverstone so I went to Silverstone and uh, did my test and um, did, I don't know if I did any good the car wasn't that special but I hadn't driven a Formula 1 at all at that point I just driven F2s and um, and then you know three days later back oh, after the weekend back to Italy to do some some more stuff at, Mo at, Ma at Modena, sorry at the Modena test track, and uh, and then from there back to Cooper. And I remember ultimately it's like, well, what are you going to do, old boy, at Cooper? And I remember a chap called Major Owens was the team manager, <laughs> and he said, and so he says, look, okay, old boy, come on. So he sit down and he's saying he has the paperwork in front of him. He says, okay, you're about your contract. He said, we're going to give you all the races next year and this year, and your car is being built now. And I'm going, just one? You know, I need more than one, <laughs> probably, to last me a year or two. And uh, so he says, there's your car, and it did look big, that Maserati engine yeah. in the back. It did look a big thing. And it did drive like a big thing, obviously, because I had driven it already. 
And uh, so he said, okay. And of course, I had heard about this thing, you remember it, Nigel, called the Mayfair scale. Do you remember? It was a form of payment, or what they got, you know, if they got points and all the rest of it. I mean, Bernie changed it just a little bit. But, um, and this bloody Mayfair scale thing came in, and I didn't really know what it was, because it had never bothered me. I just wanted to drive. And I thought, well, there must be 100,000 quid in this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, all these guys are earning big money, aren't they? And um, so we sat down, we went to it, and he said, well, of course, this, that, and the other. We had a very expensive year, and there's been crashes. And, and then I'm going, okay, back, we're probably down to 20,000 now. So, <laughs> so, he then, so he then said, uh, I've never said this openly, have I? You've heard me before. But so he then said, um, he said, and of course, he said, we haven't done well in any races, so of course, we lost our travel allowance. And I'm going, oh, bloody hell, that's 10,000 probably. <laughs> so we're getting down to it. And he said, um, so he said, let's just say a nominal fee of five pounds <laughs> to sign Formula One. Okay. I went, I said, and I was actually stunned. I, and I went, oh, okay. So he said, um, he said, well, I said, I'm not sure about this. He said, um, well, what did you come into this sport for? I said, well, to get into Formula One. He said, well, we're offering you a drive. And I'm going, but for five quid, in, and I'm going, for five quid, I don't know, I could get more riding for London Transport, you know, which is about the same thing as the car, to be frank with you. So, anyway, uh, so that was that, and I sort of left under a bit of a cloud from, from Cooper's going, I'd rather do F2. They're only offering you Formula 2. I said, I know, but I think there's a Formula 1 car there somewhere. So with that, I went to Ferrari quite logically. But it was a bit, of, and I was doing this all on my own. You know, I didn't have anybody to advise me and say, "Look, oh boy, I should take this for six did months." Did you, before you signed anything, did you talk to Eamon Oryx <coughs> about? Um, well, yes, I did. But I didn't sign for some time because I'd heard all this stuff about, you know, the drive he pushes his drivers to the limit and all that sort of thing. And I'm going, Do you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm only a farming boy. I don't want to be pushed to the bloody limit by some Italian. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, I was very backward in going forward. And so I didn't sign. And I went to Monza for my first race, the Lotteria. And I think I'd done a bit of testing at Modern. I must have done before I went there. So I went to Monza. Uh, with no, having not signed it, will you sign your contract? No, I won't, not yet. Let me just see how we all get on, was my actual words. Let's see if we all sort of you know, make friends over this. And I went out and got pole position. Now, I'm, I'm not sure to this day that it wasn't a fix, because you know how Ferrari could fix things, but, but I really wasn't that slow in F2. I got pole up at uh, Zandvoort three weeks later, so, and won one of the races, so I guess I was okay. So uh, I'm on pole position at the first race. I remember I went back to the hotel, the, the Santo Storgio at Arcore. And you can imagine, it was my first race for Ferrari at Monza. And I'm the newest kid on the block. The old man's come along to have dinner the night before, you know, and I'm racing. I don't think Ix or Raymond were in that race. It was me, and there was a Brambilla, and there yeah. was about, and Baghetti, was it Baghetti? Anyway, three, not Baghetti. I can see him now, but Cassoni. Wasn't he in a Ferrari? Yeah. Anyway, I didn't really know them. and. Um, and so uh, I lay in bed that night, and every bloody hour the clock struck, you know, one o'clock. <laughs> and of course, it struck it three times because there were four faces to it, because so, their timing's out on their clocks in Italy. So all night I kept hearing this, I'm going, oh, God, I'm lying, this is my first race, and I'm not sleeping a wink. And we went to the race, and uh, of course, there were about 24, 30 odd cars, and always were in F2. And of course, at Monza, there was, you know, you had the, from the Parabolica, it was flat through the Curve Grander, just a little lift at the first of the Lesmos, and flat all the way back down to Parabolica. There was only one bloody corner on it. I mean, they were a bit dangerous, the ones you went around, but I mean, there, was no, there wasn't really any slowing down, and we were two abreast everywhere. 
And the Ferrari, and it sounds like I'm making excuses, but I was pretty used to racing. I'd done Formula 3 for two years, so I was pretty used to, to uh, slipstreaming. But the car didn't actually have um, tremendous speed out of a corner. It didn't have torque. And the Cosworths were really quicker. And we, we all three of us sort of dropped back to our midfield. Because obviously, when a group two, coming into corner two abreast, you all had to slow down and shuffle. And the, v, the V8s, Cosworths, would pull away. So anyway, and then... <laughs> And then suddenly, in the middle of Parabolica, something happened, and uh, I ended up being going backwards down the road. And the one, my own performer two, Brabham with Peter Westbury in it, that that was part of the crash. Um, what was his name? Jean-Pierre Jusso in a matra. He went flying through the air. I had it all. I got it all somewhere at home on in colour from Auto Sprint. They had it in sort of picture by frame by frame. And that was the end of my race. And I'd written off three Ferraris. And uh, I thought, this wasn't a good start. <laughs> so I thought, oh, shit. Uh, excuse my French. And, uh, I, I thought, I wish I'd signed my contract. <laughs> so I got out of the car and, and uh, sort of, you know, uh, yeah, did I finish? The, anyway, I don't know if I finished or not. But I certainly had to have the spin and the rest all hit each other. That, and to this day, I'm not sure what happened. I mean, in the Parabolica, you were two abreast and you were going flat. There was no reason for me to lose control. But I think I was hit from behind. Um, Brambilla said I was hit from behind, who was standing on the corner watching. And then somebody else, and that, uh, so I, I always, I thought the gib, something broke in the drive shaft, but it doesn't matter. Either way, I didn't go much further. And so that was it, was given me 250 quid, which is what you got for Formula 2 then. You got 500 quid a race for Formula 1. And uh, so I took my money and went home. I thought, well, that's it. I won't be going back to Italy. And um, I remember I came back, and Pam, my wife at that time, was in hospital, very ill. And uh, so I, she, and I got back about 9 o'clock at night, and, and I said, oh, hello, my, how are you, my dear? She said, I saw it on TV. It was on the news. I went, oh, God, you know, that's all you need. It was a crash. But anyway, so that was it. So I thought, well, that's the end of that. And three days later, I get a call. Would I go back down to Modena and sign my contract? So I guess the fact that I was crashed three cars meant I was really trying hard. <laughs> so, so I got, so I, I, I didn't I'll go down there quickly. And as I walked in the office, um, as I walked in the office, uh, Gotzi says to me, he says, Derek, he said, um, El Commander Tori was so happy with your qualifying performance. He's a check for a thousand bucks. So I got a thousand dollars for being on pole. Mm. Uh, the fact that I'd probably cost about a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> damage to three bloody Dino <laughs> Ferraris was irrelevant, you know. But I didn't have sign that contract quickly. <laughs> And that was it. So that was the beginning. And then two races later, I was in a Formula One car. Uh, but that was the gold cup, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that was a bit later. That was a month late. Actually, it couldn't have been that long, because that's in July, isn't it? Um, I joined them in June. It was, yeah, in fact, yeah, the, gold, the gold cup I, was I, August, I yeah, think. Yeah, I did the test, the Formula One test, which was, which was quite an experience. I, I will tell you the story, because I didn't think we were going to go on very long about this. Do you want me to tell you the story of my Formula One drive? I first? think we should, because I think it was a big part of your career before you went sports car racing. Well, people don't even know I ever drove Formula One, really. That, mind you, they had to be pretty bloody old by now to remember it. Sorry. But so, so uh, yes, yeah, so they, I got a, a summons come back. You know, I went and drove at Zambort and got pole there and won the heat. And then the, the Greg at Sony had a massive crash with Chris Lambert, where he sadly lost his life, Chris did. And uh, I, we did, they did a restart. And on the start, I jammed up the gears, which I did twice during my career in F2. And I didn't win the race, obviously. But um, it sort of it gone, the enthusiasm had gone by then. And then they said, okay, you know, come back and we want you to have a Formula One test drive. It was the day, two or three days after the German Grand Prix, whatever, year, whatever month that was. So I went back and so I went down, I went to Modena. And of course, 
you know, I had a seat fitting at the factory and all that. So as one did, it's, it's, there's so many stories about it. But anyway, that was another thing. So we get down to the rate to the track, which, believe me, it was probably a kilometre around, if that. With what do you ever go there with walls? I mean, you know, thank goodness. And there's walls. It was the city walls, wasn't it, around it? And there were just bushes everywhere. There was nothing. I mean, if you went off, it was a bush or a wall. You know, but you might take bushes first. You know, which might slow you down a couple of miles an hour. But and um, and in the middle was like long grass, so you could easily disappear. And uh, so I get in the car, and I'm, s I'm sitting in the car and um, piddling with rain. And they couldn't, we didn't have wet tires because they're coming back from the Nurburgring, which invariably is wet. So there were no wet tires. So I had this sort of intermediate tire on. And Forgiri leans in the cockpit of the car and he says to me, he says, Derek, he said, if you crash the car, the last time you drive a red car, maybe a green car, but you'll never drive a red car. <laughs> with that, I had to go off and sort of, you know, set the world alight. But the great thing about driving is the rain is nobody knows how quick it is. You know, because there's nobody out there to compare to. And I was usually quite good, because I won my first race in the rain, as you said, at Goodwood. So I was always pretty good in the rain. But so I go out, and you go through a little chicane, and go around this long left-hander. And as I go around the long left-hander, there is a silver 2 plus 2 Ferrari. And guess who steps out but the old man, and he's watching. And he sticks it on the outside of a bloody long left-hander, where if I was going to have a moment, I was going to take him out and his car. You know, <laughs> What a silly thing to do. I thought, he's obviously got a lot of confidence in this moron from England, you know. So anyway, I did my laps. And, it's, and that, again, I often talk about it when I'm talking about racing. There's occasions like that you have to drive to a limit. And I think it's, you're lucky if you know what that limit is. Some people overgo and they spin off. Others don't go quick enough and are not impressive. And... I was sort of quite lucky that with occasions when I had to, I didn't go off or I went quick enough. So anyway, I came around and they said, OK, you're racing in the Gold Cup in two weeks' time. And that's what I did. Great story. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Actually, before we get off Ferrari, Derek, one thing that always stuck, stuck in my mind, you told me this years and years and years ago. Um, at Monza, you were out quite early, weren't you? Yeah, six, six laps. But I remember you telling me, you, and you were walking back and you saw Eamon's yes. accident. Um, and this, of course, was the year when Jimmy had died and Mike Spence and Scarfiotti and, yeah. and Schlesser. And, and you, I mean, I've actually never seen any, any movie or anything of that accident, but it was, Chris's, you it was a huge, it was yes, a huge was. shunt. And, well, and, and you thought that was it? That was it. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, there are so many stories. <laughs> but that one particularly, I mean... It was my first Grand Prix. It was in Italy, driving for Ferrari. I mean, you know, put pressure on a guy. And um, I was qualified s third row anyway. Uh, I thought it was the middle of the third row, next to Stewart and Holm. And um, anyway, the race started. We'd done about, you know, six, seven or eight laps. And I came down into the Lesmos, and as I came in, the engine stopped. I went, oh, bloody great, you know, another bit of striking luck here. So I pulled off, and I walked up to the end. There's like a hole in the fence at the second Lesmo, and I walked up there, um, and I think there's a second, actually, yeah, I think it's the second lesbo. No, because yeah, there was hedges now, this all open, isn't it? But we had hedges and guardrails then, so really kill yourself on so, um, <laughs> so, And I walked up, and I walked through the fence, and I went, and I stood there, and, and I went, and I started to watch, because it was early days, I was still in a group, you know. And the, the, from my recollection, and John Surtees, no doubt, will phone up and say it was totally wrong, but I thought there was Richie Ginther and him in Honda's and Chris in a Ferrari. And I think those are the three in front. Jackie was a little bit behind X in the other Ferrari. And they came through, and suddenly Chris spun 
right sort of right round in front of me and went over the guardrail backwards hit the guardrail and disappeared through these trees turning over like that and I went that's it that's it I, I think I don't know if just I thought when I have a son I think my son might have just been born I said no anyway I thought when I have a kid I'm gonna say you know got to Formula One in four years quit but at least I got to Formula One in my short career you know something some sort of achievement I thought that's it I can't take it but as you said all the guys dying that year and so and so I, I, I I, of course, wanted to go across and see that Chris was all, how, but I hate blood and I'm not good at that sort of thing. What the hell was I going to do? But you couldn't get across the track. And the next thing is, you know, about two minutes later, up comes this figure and it's Chris and he's knocking all the dust and crap off his head and his hair and cleaning his face up. And he walks across the track and I said, but you went down there upside down. He said, yeah, but I landed on my wheels. <laughs> and that was it. And I went, okay, I'll carry on. <laughs> and 48 years later, I'm talking to you. <laughs> and, and he didn't have a scratch, did he? No, he didn't have a scratch. No, no, no. We no. went to the factory the next day to see the cars uh, on the Sunday. Saturday was Grand Prix in those days. And we went by the factory on the way to old man Ferrari's house at Bellari Adriatico. And the old man used to invite you to lunch. If you were invited to lunch, you knew you had a contract for the next year. So you're going, can I come to lunch, sir? You know. <laughs> anyway, Chris and I drove down. But before that, we went by the factory. And um, we went in, and there was his car up on, you know, on stands, as they had them. And there was the finest, smallest crease in the actual, it wasn't a monocoque, of course, but in the chassis. And you could just see this little thing where the rivets were, just sort of like a twist, where it had landed at a bit of an angle and jerk. I mean, unbloody believable. And I have to say, it gave me a lot of confidence because, you know, a lot of cars were fr frail. Ferraris did build, I thought, strong cars. The only problem was you were sitting in 70 gallons of fuel. Um, so if you hit something, you weren't going to be worried about whether it broke. You could be worried about how bad the fire was, you know. Great story again. Fantastic, Derek. Uh, he's on form today, is our Derek Bell. Um, <laughs> Let the others talk. I want Ed to say no, that. No, no, no. We're here to listen to you. It's fine. <laughs> you well, to be, to be frank, I think they've paid their money to listen to you. Yeah. Um, can we move on to Porsche? Uh, partly because we need four hours for this and we've got an hour. Um, I mean, you're world famous for your exploits in a Porsche. That's no exaggeration. And particularly in the rain, you've mentioned the rain a couple of times this morning. I mean, uh, that 917 Porsche in the rain, I mean, that took balls and skill and lack of imagination, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, you didn't have any imagination at all. The problem was there were another 24 Formula One drivers that would have jumped at the seat if they had the chance that I had. And I was just very lucky uh, to get the, you know, to have the test drive and then get the drive. And, um, you know, uh, thank, thanks for that, that, you know, it made my career, to be honest. But it, I mean, you never thought it was dangerous. I mean, you got in it and you didn't mind that you were sitting there with your feet in front of the front wheels and your head was on tilted on one side because you couldn't sit up straight. It didn't bother you for 24 hours. You're going to have neck ache for the rest of your life. But it was just such an amazing car. I mean, it was started as a four and a half liter. And I think the first Le Mans we did with four and a halves and then we went to five for the sprint races. Um, but it was just, it was, a, it was a lovely car. I mean, people talk about it and it, you know, Vic Elford and I'm doing a thing at the Media Island in a few weeks with a load of endurance drivers. And I know they're going to say, yes, everybody, somebody's going to say, but you know, we heard the 917 was dangerous. Well, when I drove it, it was brilliant. 
but I drove it for the last year after John Wire's team had straightened the car out. And it, I mean, I never had a moment that I'm aware of. I don't even think I ever spun it. I mean, which is just as it well. Was a, but I think it was, a, it was a pretty, I mean, I remember Frank Gardner talking about, you know, what it was like yes. in 69. Yes. Uh, I think it was a pretty evil thing to it start was. with, oh, wasn't it? you talked to Brian Redman or any of those yeah. guys. No thanks, I don't want to get in that. No. I mean, and when, even when I was with it, I remember I, we used to go testing. We, see, we won the first race at Buenos Aires, Joe and I did. And I thought, oh, that's a good start. And then from then on, for some reason, Porsche used to get me to go to, well, for some reason, I know the reason, but now. But they used to get me to do a lot of the testing. You know, we go to the tracks where we were going to race next and do some testing. And I remember I used to phone up Joe Siffert and say, hey, Joe, see you tomorrow at Spa or see you next week at the Nürburgring or see you at Silverstone or something. And he, would, he didn't mean it. What he meant was, no, not bloody likely. <laughs> and I was going, I, I can't be there. I'm too busy. I've got to, you know, I've got a cold. And, um, <laughs> and it took, it didn't, being a bit thick, it took me about three weeks to figure out what it really meant was that he didn't want to drive it because he was worried about the bloody car. And if and he was frightened of it. And if he was frightened, <laughs> yes. And that Pedro was much the same. No, you can do it, Derek. You know, you need the practice. And he was sort of right. I did need the practice because it wasn't easy to go super fast against those guys. Um, but, you know, it, it, I thought it was a great car. But, I mean, th th I think they'd had such experiences. And don't forget, nobody actually, only John Wolfe, who shouldn't have been in it anyway, as far as I'm aware, um, had a, a fatal accident. I mean, they didn't crash that badly. You didn't need to, of course. But, um, I, I, I mean, you know, we did those speeds down the Mulsanne Strait, you know, 246 miles an hour, and it was pretty bloody quick. And it was very stable, I have to say. Well, I mean, to anything else I'd ever driven there. But um, I'd only driven one car, so I suppose that's... And that was a Ferrari 512, but we would like 30 miles it, an hour quicker. It's actually amazing in a way, isn't it? You, you, I mean, we're talking about you know, 40 years ago, and the aerodynamics were pretty rudimentary. Yes, were, yeah, yeah. And yet, the car was remarkably stable. It didn't take off, did it? No, I was going to say, years and years and years later, with the aerodynamics mm, infinitely yes. more sophisticated, then they, they started having problems yeah. with yes, well, cars of course, getting airborne. Exactly. Yeah, well, I guess the underneath was, was not as smooth as it should have been. But, I mean, they seemed to go along like they were about to launch, didn't they? But, they, you know, the car, uh, it, w it was stable. I mean, there was no hint of it sort of wandering around the road. It was just brilliant, but I mean, I fortunately that first year, that year, Lamar, I don't think it rained, which made life a little easier. But the car was brilliant in the rain because it was, you remember, the chassis was moderately s soft because it was all tubular. And consequently, in the rain, it was actually very supple and worked really well in the rain. That's why the cars flew in the rain. They were quicker in the rain relative to anything else, actually. What was the, what was the visibility like in the pouring rain at, that, at 240 plus? Well, I... I as I said, I didn't drive in the rain with that car, but I mean, in the 962, we were doing 235, yeah. 238 or something. And to be, it's a really a strange thing. Unless you've gone over 200 miles an hour, in my opinion, you haven't been into another world. It's just, you you go over the edge and it suddenly, it's very strange. It, it becomes a surreal experience over 200, in the rain particularly. And you literally, you, as you go up there, the rain is coming down. Of course, it's hitting you like bloody snow a snowstorm but at a certain point you actually the wall becomes a wall like that and you cannot see there's so much rain coming at you that you can't see through it and then fortunately you go around to kink and you know you're about to slow down because <laughs> you're at the end but i mean it was it was <laughs> it was awful really but you did it didn't you because the you didn't feel scary in the car i mean it actually got worse driving the 962s because we had a certain amount of ground effect 
and that mulls up that mulls on straight you know it's four miles long with a kink obviously after you know whatever it is three and a half miles but the, because of the truck marks you've got to realize it's not a, it's not like driving around the new silverstone it, it's rutted and you had to go across those ruts to get to overtake things in the 917 it did it with ease i thought in the 962, you had to actually, or whatever else I drove in that era, you had to actually really make a concerted effort not to, to lose it. Because uh, the car would sort of pull out of the tram lines and then have to go into the other side and settle it down. And uh, only when they resurfaced it, and I can't remember when it was, but one year they resurfaced it for us in 26 years. And um, it was actually quite nice that year because it was smooth the whole way. But latterly, I must admit, it was the terrifying thing was, particularly when they put those chicanes in um, because it meant you had to pull you'd overtake something you had to pull back in to get the line for braking to turn right for the first one come out go out to the left then pull back to the right side for the next chicane and uh, you know it was it was pretty nasty to be honest with you and nobody talks about it much because we have we accept it because we're racing drivers but actually it was pretty pretty nasty I remember we when we drove the McLaren there which wasn't really a the Le Mans car that first year, the, um, and uh, with Justin and, and um, Andy Wallace, and it rained from I think about eight o'clock at night until eleven o'clock the next morning. I mean, just chucked it down, and we led the whole time for some ridiculous reason, and all the prototypes fell out one way or another, and we were leading. And um, I remember a, a week a, a week later we were at Goodwood, and up comes this chap from McLaren. He said, "I was the project engineer on that car." I said, "Oh, great! What a bloody brilliant car, you know." And he said, "You know, we went out on the golf course at night to watch you guys going down the Moorsholme Strait. Do you know?" He said, "You guys were putting opposite lock on going down the Strait." I said, "If I told anybody." like Nigel Roebuck, that we were putting opposite lock on. He said, nuts, of course you're not. But he said, you were, you know. And I said, we were, but we couldn't tell people. I mean, literally, because of those gullies, you were doing that with the car, trying to correct it, going down the straight at a hundred. We didn't do a 200 in the wet, but 180 we were still doing, and the car was, you know. People never think of what it's that. It was difficult on the straight, because it's aquaplaning, and then you have to go from, you know, move around. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. hairy. Um, Group C, earlier on you mentioned you know, we're going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Group C. It's the era that you're always going to be associated with, with most. Mm. Just going back to that, the first time you drove a 956, what did you, what did you think? It, it, it's an, you could have put more to that question, Damien, if you, and you probably will in the future, but it was the first time we'd driven ground effect. So, you know, it was quite a, quite a, going to be quite a change. And people say, did you, how did you quickly, did you adapt to it? And we went to... I don't think I ever drove it at Weissach, um, Kusmal did that, and then I went, Jackie and I, and Jochen, we, and I think maybe, maybe Vern Schupen, I can't remember, we went to Paul Ricard, and um, to do, just a test, and we, with the plan of being there a week, and I just remember going out in this fantastic car, wondering what the hell it was going to be, but you remember, so, you know, it had a demonocoque chassis, it had ground effect, and it had, a, in a horizontally opposed engine, and nobody had ever done that ever or nobody had done those three in one and why should it really work but we are never wrong as, <laughs> said, as, as, as professor bot said to me as i yes yeah, so i thought i'd sign the contract at that point but that's another story so and um so he so we went out and it, to be honest it was just like everything you did with porsche that they wouldn't send you out and give you full boost but when nobody really knew what that was going to be anyway um, but we started with 600 horsepower, but ended up, you know, at the end with 800 plus. But, um, and of course, it was a bigger engine. It went from, what, 2.6 to 
2.6 up to 3.2, I think, in the end. But um, it, you, you just, it, it, the car just felt so flat and stable. That was the point about it, is that, you know, remember for the previous years, we'd driven, you know, 936s and 935s ever since the Porsche 917. Stuff that really was a compromise the whole way. And suddenly we're in this new type of car. And we all thought it was magnificent. We all did very comparable times, and we were all quick. It was quite strange. I mean, it was so fast, to be honest with you. But it was getting used to that turning into the corner speed, which, of course, Formula One, for goodness sake, flies into them now. But in those days, we still poured a lot of G. Yeah. And sports car racing suddenly became good again, really. Yeah. Uh, it had gone through a fallow period, hadn't it? Yeah, so oh, absolutely. I mean, the 70s. In 1979, I was about to stop. I mean, that was it. You know, I'd won in 75 and I'd had some good races with the Mirage and won some races and so on. But, but I mean, I have to say, when it got to 79, that was it. I mean, I had to earn money and I had to do something to earn money. And um, I thought it was back to the farm. And then that's when Steve O'Rourke came out of the blue and said, hey, Derek, you know, how about driving for me? And, um, and he was, and I'd never met him before, the, from the Pink Flanger of the Pink Floyd. And so he said, let's drive, let's run Lancia's. And I said, no, Steve, um, I'd rather, I don't think Lancia's is a good idea. I've worked with Italians, and as much as I love them, I think you'd be, you wouldn't get much service out of Lancia, which is really a good move. So I said, I think we should, what do you think? And he said, I, should, I think we should run an M1 BMW. I said, we're never going to win, but we're always going to be there. And that's what we did, and we finished third and won our class at Silverstone, the first race we did. So we knew that you know, that was the right way to go, because it wasn't going to work at Le Mans. But following that, I got the offer to go to Porsche, and he released me to drive the 936, which we won with. But it was on the verge of collapse, wasn't it? I mean, there was nothing there. And that, and that was when you know, they said, we're going to do Group C, which I didn't know what it was, because I never rode the read the magazines to that degree. And then, of course, we went testing, and it was quite phenomenal. And all we did from then on was just little minor developments. I was surprised that it never went balmy and went big jumps. Porsche always do it bit by bit, you know. And, and also, they didn't want to get too far ahead of the private teams. I remember one particular race, I was really disappointed when we sort of, I wouldn't say we weren't allowed to win, but we, I believe we could have won, but they said, no, you've got to, you've got to stick with what you're doing. And it, they said it's really it's very good if one of our private owners like Yurst wins. So that was it, you know. And they, I knew that that was their, certainly Professor Bott's feeling at that point. Yeah. It's good to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Derek, when did you last uh, see the the in-car movie of yourself driving around the ring? Because um, I, I, well, I, I watch that quite often. And well, it's not that. I saw it the other day. Only because I was giving a talk, there it is, I was giving a talk to the Chamber of Commerce in Naples the other day, to the business, American Businessman's Lunch. And I said, look, and they said, you've got some footage. I said, if you show it, you've got to show it on a big screen. And so we had excerpts from that film. Uh, for, but I always used Le Mans because I think people need to see the speed. Yeah. But you've got to have a screen, big screen. I remember when they showed it at Melia Island five years ago when I was the honoree, as they call it. And they, they put it up on this massive screen across the whole end of the hall. Well, you know, well, we, we, you, but bigger than you had, you know, in London a few weeks ago. And literally, I mean, um, there were 680 people at this dinner. And I mean, Surtees was there and Sterling was there and David Hobbs was there and all this sort of thing. And the whole way through the build, everybody's talking, you know, through dinner and when the other people get up to talk about this charity. And they don't give a damn. And they're all talking. And Hobbs is looking at me and he says, are you going to handle this lad? And I went, <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> and then Justin comes from his table. He says, Dad, how are you going to handle it? I said, I'm not a professional at talking. 
believe it or not. And um, I'm, not a, I'm not a pro at it at all, I said, but I said, uh, if they talk, I'm out of here. I'll just say, excuse me. You know, I'm not, I ca I'm not a comedian, and I can't sort of, you know, say thanks very much and be rude. I just will say thanks to everybody, and I'll get out quickly. And uh, so anyway, up gets Bill, whatever his name is, who runs it. And he, and he says, okay, blah, blah, everybody, you know, Derek's history is really Islamo, so let's look at a lap of him in the office. And he slings on this lap in the, in the 960, and I sat there, and I watched it, and the hackles came up on my neck. I thought, God, if you look at it on a big screen, it's magic. And that line goes by underneath the car and the trees, you know. And suddenly people started to clap and cheer, and I turned around, and 680 people were standing up. I've known anything like it in my life. Yeah, because it's not like the ring, which is slow down off the, I mean, the yeah. Mulsanne straight goes on a whole minute of full yeah. throttle in top gear, you know. So anyway, so it is impressive. I have to see that in-car thing. What I don't understand is it hasn't come over since. You know, it, we've had laps of different cars, but it doesn't seem, I suppose because the Mulsanne straight's gone. And of course, the old Nuremberg ring is gone. And of course, you lose that. Who wants to really watch somebody go around Silverstone? You can't tell between 200 and, yeah. and I mean, 160. Someone more footage the sort of Manti Porsche at the Nurburgring 24 hours. You know, that, that on a hot lap dealing with traffic is yeah. still impressive, but that's, yeah, you know, one in a yeah. hundred. It's, it's, yeah. also, it's also partly, I think, Derek, <clears throat> because you need reference points. You need to see the scenery going by at that yeah. rate of yeah, knots. Yeah. I mean, it, when you watch on board in Monte Carlo, for example, it looks bloody quick. Mm, mm. At Silverstone, you haven't got anything in your no, peripheral. No, no, no I'd, nothing to sort of to just sort of sort of really give you a, no. a speed de uh, yeah. definition. But in, with a minute of full throttle, you actually watching it, you actually you start to take it all in, and you got there's houses, and there's the restaurant, and there's and there's trees start to go by, you know, and over another little brown, and we're not there yet, and it'll never happen again because they've always got chicanes. So I suppose that's what makes it so special to watch. What we haven't, what we haven't, sorry, Nigel. No, 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 I was going to say it's, it's, a, it's a great shame that no movie exists of, you know, a lap of the old spa, mm. you know, the, yeah. the, nine, the 917 era. That? We didn't have yeah. a camera. Gone. Bloody camera was the size of a house. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah it was. It was. when Well, when I went round the Nürburgring, I actually, you know, doing that in car yeah. 956, I was, I had to lean against the camera at a certain point because the strap had come loose and they had this big, like, oh. big movie tone camera sitting there. Yeah. And you see it when they do the in-shot shot when I get in the car. And of course the straps, the camera's doing that side to side. And eventually I have to put my arm against the strap with my left elbow, you know. I only get around the ring with 160 corners with my elbow holding the camera. And then surprise, surprise, Jackie Hicks goes by and I'm saying, well, sorry, well, the camera's falling over and he's, in a, you know, I mean, it sounds a load of cobblers, doesn't it? So... Sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, no. I, I, if it seems like I'm trying to hog the show, I'm certainly not. I'm just trying to move it on because I know how many wonderful stories you have. I, in fact, the, the, the onboard lap reminds me of um, going to Brands Hatch and having a ride round, a few laps round Brands with you in the Porsche. And I do remember that the person who went before me was a girl from BBC Radio and she was violently sick when she got, when she got out of the car. And I said to you, Derek, what's, the, what's been the problem? And you said to me, oh, I don't think she was feeling very well before. <laughs> she had morning sickness, she told me. <laughs> 
It was about three minutes to 12. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sick, but I did drive home thinking, well, OK, I, no way could I do that. Um, amazing experience. Right. We haven't taken any readers' questions, but we're going to, because otherwise it's pointless of them to ask them. And, and uh, I've got a question uh, here from... Um, Tom Chilton, who's uh, oh, yeah. very, very, yeah, yeah, you've heard of Tom Chilton. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Successful touring car driver, of course. And he wants to know which um, Le Mans was the hardest one to win. And just so you know, we've got about 20 minutes left. Okay. Oh, and I'm not going to talk. I mean, I, the thing is, I can never remember which was my favourite Le Mans. Uh, because, you know, what was your f the best victory? I honestly don't know. I just know... And I think it's often the case that if it runs well, it, if you don't have a problem at Le Mans, keep, and you just fill, refuel and change tyres and drivers when you have to, you were in the ballpark to win in the right car, of course. The most difficult one was to finish second. And so, Tom, I'm sorry about that, but the win, none of the wins were that. They were all hard, but we just did it methodically, and the car was perfect, and that was fine. The worst was coming second in 83, when Ix were going, right, going for a hat-trick. And he got punted off at Mulzahn on the first lap. And of course, he had to wait for 55 cars to go by before he could get back in line again. And then he came in the pits because the under tray was damaged and they checked it over. And of course, at that point, we'd lost a, basically nearly a lap. And uh, we worked, that was in the height of the fuel regulations, which I detested, but did prove something in the end, I guess, that Ix and I were good at fuel conservation by the end of it. And we took a whole lap off the second place car by six in the morning with, but not using any more fuel than they had yet we'd come from we'd taken a lap so we were pretty good at it. we're the only car course with two drivers as well and the other because jackie had written to me and said i think it's time we had three and i said but who the heck is there out there i mean it's very conceited look at but i couldn't think who the heck i wanted to drive with i had this confidence in jackie and i guess in me too uh and um, I, so we drove together, but it was exhausting. And of course, I, I, at the end of it, I was rather sad that we hadn't taken a third driver. But when then we drove through, got back up onto, into the lead at about 11 in the morning. And we had, I, I fixed the electronics, sorry, when this engine stopped, I got to Mulzahn, lifted the body up, and I'd never been much of a mechanic, but I knew the engine was in the back. And I lifted up the, the whole of the body, which is big on the long tail. And I went in and I watched Norbert Singer the night before showing us three things to do if it stops. So I changed the sensor on the flywheel. I changed the um, um, coil and I went inside the car and I changed the ECU. And I put my hand in, turned the key and of course the car didn't need you to sit in it. It just started right. So I thought, okay, keep running. And then I had to go out and put the, put the boot down. Boot that you know the, the engine cover this bloody great thing and of course you used to take three mechanics usually and I went this is not going to go but we hadn't practiced this and I remember I sort of balanced it on the rear tires and I just got hold of it by the wing and I just sort of ran forward hoping and went clank 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 bang and it went in and we bolted it up put the pins in four pins and off I went drove back to pits and they yanked me out because I'd driven without seat belts. So I got back to pits, and of course I was a bit mucky, because, you know, being a mechanic. And um, Jackie jumped in, and then, as I say, late in the morning, we, about 11 o'clock later, we had a problem with, a, I think, an oil, an oil cooler pipe got a minor fracture in it. So we had to put a new one of those on, which lost us time. And then with an hour, with an hour and a half to go, Norbert Singer said, um, you do want me to tell the story, do you? Yeah. yeah, that's what Tom's asking. <laughs> yeah. And then an hour and a half to go, I thought, that's it, I've had enough, you know. And Jack, I always, Jackie, you, you know, often used to start the race and I would finish 
because he liked to look good looking up on the winner's rostrum. And I'd get out there like a bloody drowned rat, you know, having just <laughs> lost 14 pounds, you know. And Jackie had time to do his, his coif a little better. And, and so, um, so uh, I, I, I remember it came to an hour and a half to go and I knew there was another pit stop towards the end. And we were, and uh, I thought, well, we're never gonna win. We can't possibly win now. And I'm in the caravan and Jackie and I were brilliant. We'd always be there for the other when the time came. I thought, you know, he can bloody finish it today. I was knackered. I was really knackered. So, so anyway, next thing is as a on the door, uh, Herr Bell, Mr. X is coming in in five minutes. I went, oh damn, I was in the wrong caravan. I should have gone somewhere else. So I went out, you know, and Norbert Singer's there. And I said, how's it going, Norbert? Well, we are second by a minute or something like that. So I said, but what's the problem? He said, we have no brakes. I said, oh, that's really good. And, um, I, you know, stopping at the end of Mulsanne is really difficult <laughs> without brakes. So I said, uh, I said, so what's the option? He said, well, the discs are all cracked. Sort of Four, four ways, Susan. The disc is being held by Babel in the middle, really. I said, well, that's promising. And I knew Fitzy at the beginning of the race had had one shatter and tore his suspension off, he and Guy Woods' car. I thought, that's really good. So I thought, what am I going to do? So um, I said, what's the other option? He said, well, we said we can, he said we can either change... Um, Sorry, somebody's phone is bothering you Is, is anybody out there that's got a phone ringing? Because it's you, really upsetting me. You carry on, Derek. Okay. Okay. And so, so I thought, so what's the other option? He said, well, we're going to have to change the discs. I said, how long does that take? He said, four minutes. And I went, oh, God, that's another lap. So I said, oh, no, we can't do that. So he said, he said what? and I said, the other option? He said, well, you can have to run slowly and not use the brakes. I said, I'll run slowly. So, uh, you know, so Jackie comes in, up it goes on the, I'm jumping the car, up it goes on the jacks. Mechanic's putting the wheel back on and Jackie's going, you know, like, get out, no, you've got to change the discs. And I'm, and I'm on the radio, I'm saying, get him out the bloody way, I just want to go, go, let me go, let me go, let me go. So off we go and I go out the pit lane, down I go, and I thought, well, I'll play it cool for a couple of laps. So, I mean, I'm 300 seconds behind or something, whatever, four minutes is. And so I'm sort of, I go down the Mulsanne straight because I didn't know what really they were like. I never thought to this day what Jackie really thought of me. We're still friends. And uh, so anyway, I went down the Mulsanne straight and I thought the best thing to do is to try and warm the brakes up. You know, Norbert said just use the gearbox. But we're always told to use the brakes because they're quicker to change and gearbox takes an hour or two. So anyway, I'm going down the Mulsanne and I start to use my left foot to warm up the discs. I think, you know, being a bit of a technical guy, I thought, well, if I heat up the discs, they might glue, you know, might weld together for me when I hit the brakes at the end. So, you know, whether it works or not, in my brain, I thought I was a genius. So, flying down the straight, and they, out comes the board, 100, uh, so 180 seconds behind, and going, oh my gosh, you know. And then the next lap, I started to go a bit better and a bit better, and it comes out, and the board says, you know, minus, you know, 160, and I'm going, bloody hell, they must have a problem. Then I hear Holbert on the radio saying, I said, the water temperature's gone off the clock. So I know that's promising. So I next lap round another 20 seconds off. And I'm really going quite well to the degree that I broke the record, lap record twice in the last hour. And um, so you know, plodding on round and then they're on the radio again. The water temperature's gone the other way. There's no water temperature at all. In other words, there's no water there to have a temperature with. <laughs> 
So at that point, I pressed the button and I said, call him in, call him in, you know, get him off the road. Because we were second. I didn't say that. We were running second. So I thought, get them out of the way. You know, they must have a big problem. So we carried on and we actually went over the line 26 seconds behind them on the last lap. And they just stopped. I mean, it wouldn't have done another lap. And that to me was, and I got carted off and put on a bed of ice because my bloody temperature was off the clock, my body temperature gone. But, but, and that was it. That was the last time we drove with two drivers. But it, that was my hardest race. Uh, the one with Justin was hard in the McLaren too. But that was the hardest, I think. So great. therefore, not necessarily the best, but the hardest. No, it's a great question and a, and a great answer. Fantastic. Sorry for so long, Tom. No, no, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Um, I do want to take a couple more readers' questions. Is that all right, Mr. Editor? No, absolutely, absolutely. There's no, no point, point otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a nice, easy one, really, from Steve Fall, but it's quite interesting. What was your favourite circuit? Because you drove. Spa. I mean, Spa. Yeah. I wouldn't know if it's the old one or the new one. The old one was pretty spectacular. 164 mile hour average round there. First day. Then, in the 917, I got on the business book of records with the fastest lap in qualifying. God. What is it, briefly, <laughs> about the place? I don't know. I th now I look at it, because I think I'm looking at it as how I like the tracks in the world now. Mm. Um, and Spa, they haven't sc screwed up yet. You know, it's, it's obviously made into a Grand Prix track, but it's actually a wonderful track. It's still long enough. What I don't like is one corner after another corner after another corner. It's boring as hell. There's no overtaking. Still spa. You can drive the hell out of a car. You've got the most difficult corner in the world, Eau Rouge, or whatever you call it, the bottom of the hill. I mean, that is the best corner, isn't it? The Radion. I mean, there's nothing like that. I mean, whenever we went round there, 962, you could never take it flat every lap. I mean, you just couldn't. You'd be round there halfway around and something somewhere would just make your right foot come off just for a split second. What was the Master King like in the, in the 917? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was my second year. Um, uh, we haven't got time, but the first year I had the worst fright of my whole career, the year before, but I won't go into it in the Mirage, uh, than the year after. But the 917, you had to slow down for the Master King, yeah. It was, we, I know in the Mirage, we took it at just over 190 miles an hour. You could, I, I, you could just take it flat. In the 917, you couldn't. But we were going quicker in the 917. Because it is the most as astonishing too. place. When you yeah. go, I mean, uh, last year when I was there for the, for the Grand Prix, yeah. I always drive around yeah. the old you track. You have to, don't you? Stop there, and you look at it, and you cannot conceive no. that it was flat. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, you really it can't. It's just right. like a left-hander and a right-hander. Yeah, I know it is, yeah, with houses yeah. like the yeah. side. Yeah, and a downhill approach. Yeah, I know. And a blind approach. And, and barbed wire on either side. Yeah, yeah. It did have, it did have guardrail around it. When I in, yes. in those years, just yes. round the, the the sequence, but then you hit Stavlo at the bottom, and you knew that that's where you had to be really quick because you came out for the whole drive back up the hill, and you could take nearly take the whole way back up as far as Clubhouse flat out, but again, if you came out of Stavlo two hundred revs more, the next corner was a bit too quick, so you had to actually go around there and come out with 200 revs more. So you, that made you work hard trying to get the balance for the next three corners. Because if you came out, as I say, Stavlo well, the next three, yeah. you, you didn't want to have the back off because all the effort it put in at Stavlo. That was incredible. Yeah. That was the most amazing circuit. But the, new, the, the circuit as it is, is still the best in the world, I think. I think, um, I think we've got to ask you about the scariest experience you ever had, because I, I, I assumed it would be during a night out with David Purley, not, n not in a racing when car. When the police took us away, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> no. No, there were, there were a very, it's a very big story. We were there with the Mirage, I guess two years later. I wasn't, I don't think it was 72, I would say 73. 
No, we won it. Anyway, 72. We went there, and of course, we were golf sponsored. When we get there, we had the little, well, little motorhome thing that the whole team spent their time in. And up comes a knock on the door, and there's this little group of people turn up on their way in golf jackets and looking very full of themselves and happy. And I said, oh, hello, hello. And they said, oh, we're, um, this, uh, we're from Gulf, Portugal, and uh, this is our young driver. So I said, oh, nice to meet you. And, so, and they said, it's his first time here. I said, oh, lucky you. And, um, but it had been mine the year before, so what's the big deal, you know? So I said, to him, so, I said so what have you been driving? He, they said, oh, well, he was in Formula Ford in Portugal. And he's driving a two-liter Lola, and he's never driven it before, and he's never been to Spa. I went, well, good luck. Little realizing <laughs> that I would have to have the bloody luck. So we go out, and of course I realized, and said it afterwards, we really, anybody that's new should half an hour before we all go out. It's bloody silly mixing us around Spa. They should, like at any of the tracks, let the people that have never been there before go and do yeah. half an hour. So. So that was it. So we, we go out for practice, and X is in the works Ferrari 333, and I'm in the Mirage. And of course, the V8 in mine, and he had, he had the 12 cylinder in the back of his, so they had slightly different, you know, sort of abilities as engines. And as we went, and of course, X was the king of Spa, so we're going down to the Master Kink. <laughs> going down to the Master Kink, and I, in the first few laps, you, you, you come off the gas just a little bit. In fact, at the beginning, you should downshift, actually. But then you lift off a little bit, quite a bit, and the next lap. But remember, every time you go around, it's nearly four minutes. So you don't get too many chances to go around. So I coming down, you know, down to the kink, and I was feathering the throttle and then through. I get down to Stavlo, and it was right up my arse. And I, back, sorry. And uh, round Stavlo, roar up the hill, get to the, sta get to the top of the source, and I'd have pulled away. And... Um, that was it. Every, for about three laps, I thought, I've got to take that bloody Master King flat, haven't I? So I come down there. And of course, it's only a country lane, isn't it? You know, it's not exactly a highway. I came flying down there on the right. I thought, you could take it flat this time. And I came in, and I just kept my foot flat down, 195. And I just turned the wheel. And there's a red Lola in the middle of the road. And I went, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this in slow motion just for you at home. And, uh, and, I, th I, and I thought, I'll go round him, because he's on the left-hand side. He was coming away from the guardrail, which is on the right-hand side. And I, I couldn't go round him out here, which is where I wanted to go, round the outside of him, because there wasn't room. He hadn't pulled away enough. And I couldn't go round the left, because he was pulling towards the left, and then I had to go right anyway. And I'm going, anyway, some, I, to this day, I'm not sure what I did, but I guess I hit the brakes. So I went down the road sideways, and I just remember that I just split second the back of his car, and then I flicked it back the other way, or it went back the other way of its own accord. <laughs> and <laughs> I went down the side of this bloody Lola, carried on around the corner, and carried on at about 70 miles an hour. And I, I've never had a scare the whole of my career, apart from that one. And uh, I thought, well, where's X? And eventually, at Stablo, he goes by. So because I hadn't been looking at my mirrors as well. But you can see. So we, anyway, I go back into the pit and the team say, God, that last lap of yours is great. Why didn't you stay out? I said, I said, you know, just let take, I said, there's a red Lola. I said, just pick out what, and I didn't quite, I got the serial number of the gearbox, but I don't know what the number <laughs> on the side is. <laughs> so, so anyway, this bloody Lola comes in. And of course I went, oh God, it's the kid from Portugal with his golf helmet or golf sticker somewhere. 
so I'm out of the car by now, and I had a Coca-Cola because we were all fitness freaks in those days. And I carry my Coke and Cola, and I walk down the pit until I find this little two-liter car. And this kid's sitting in the car, and he's got his helmet on, and he he just looks. He said, "I sorry, I really sorry." And I went, "Oh shit, what can you do?" You know. And so that was it. And I and about an hour later, I saw Jackie, and I because I you know I didn't know him that well. We've been at Ferrari together, but I didn't know him really really well, as we do now. And I I said to him, "What happened to you?" He said, "You know." He said, as we came down, I thought, something's going to go wrong. And he said, I backed off. You know, it's a funniest seventh sense you have sometimes. I think we've all had them. And I think it'd be quite interesting to ask drivers what seventh sense they've had, because I know I had a couple, particularly on the RSC rally. But, um, but in that particular case, he had that, and he just backed off and lost the lap just for, you know, because he thought, and he didn't know the bloody car was there. So, so, just so that's the story. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Very quickly, um, you know, none of us around this table have been anywhere near that kind of stuff. So do you actually have time to think about what, what I'm going to do and what I, or is it most of it just a reflex? It's a reflex, yeah. yeah. So, so really... You do go, I mean, you do think of... I, did, I, had, I thought of the option of going around him, but I saw there was not enough room for a ma mirage. Plus, I was going to be on a bit of grass before I hit the guardrail. And uh, the, le the left, I couldn't get the car back to because I was drifting out there. I mean, it was flat. Mm -hmm. And I just hit the brakes, which I did because I was going to crash mm -hmm. and make it the minimal crash. But I didn't have time to think about it. I mean, you know the corner. I mean, you just do not have time. I don't know if there's trees there now or there were then. But I mean, you, you, didn't see, you couldn't see the corner until you got into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a uh, phew. I'm holding my breath. Um, let's take <laughs> so one more I. reader's question uh, before we go, shall we? And then we'll run around the table because I know everybody else around the table wants to ask you. Um, it's really you mentioned you've mentioned your son Justin a couple of times actually during the program, and uh, there's a question here from Simon Atkin, and he says, you know, what was it like racing with Justin and was it, you know, I, I am going to be quicker than him, although he's only a boy, and he's saying, I'm going to be quicker than him, he's an old man. Well, I knew I was quicker than him. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think at the time I was with him, I, I was experienced enough to be quicker. I think, you know, the races we did together, which was actually really only Le Mans twice. And, uh, you know, when we took in there with, that, with, with Tiffany Dell and I and the Ada engineering car back in, I think, 92 or something like that, um, you know, it was his first time at Le Mans. And in my opinion, he wasn't going to be as quick as me. And that, but I wasn't bothered about it. I mean, the most important thing about Le Mans is not ruining the car. And it, what always bothers me when I go with new, young, new guys is that that's why I always say, you know, let everybody go out and do plenty of practice because it's no good me doing a, you know, a three-minute 18 if the other guys are doing 326. And this is something I had to say when I was sort of part of the Bentley program. There's no good in one of the drivers trying to push the Audis, which is a true story out there, to try and be ahead of them all the time if the other blokes in the race are going to be six seconds slower. The guy that's doing the fastest time, he can back off four seconds, but he's still quicker than the other guys who are going to be busting a gut to break the car to try and equal his times. And that's why, you know, you can't have inter-team rivalry. It, I don't believe to that. It doesn't seem to matter so much now because the cars are so strong. But, I mean, if you pushed our cars, you know, at a, to try and extend it beyond your your talent the whole time you're going to damage the car but um, as far as Justin was concerned I mean I was just so thrilled to drive with him and I mean to drive with your own son's pretty special there aren't many dads that are driven with their sons and um, and uh, you know when it came to the McLaren he was very good in the McLaren with Andy Wallace and I don't know how our times related 
Um, I know he frightened himself in the night, so it just left me driving with Andy when I was only only been asked three weeks before to do it. So I wasn't really ready for the race, and I didn't think it would last anyway. But after 24 hours, I realized it had. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think to drive with the sun spectacular, but there was never any challenge about who was quicker. I think once he had, you know, gone on further than that, you know, what, uh, he was certainly, you know, and I must, must have been getting slower. Um, you know, I'd, and I know when I actually went to Daytona five years ago, it was my last sort of sortie in a competitive car, uh, whatever you think of Grand Am, particularly at that time. But um, uh, it took me quite a while to get down to the times that he was doing and the other guy. But then I hadn't driven one of them, and they were pretty horrible to drive then. There was no really little power. I was used to a bit of, of horsepower, and, the, uh, and there was not much handling, and there wasn't much power for what I was used to. And it was an old car, so, and I was an old man. <laughs> but I did get down to the times in the end, but it, it took me about 20 laps. Yeah. The, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, well, no, we'll start with Ed, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, I, no, I was just going to ask, you mentioned that, obviously, the, the Grand Am car wasn't very nice to drive at all. These, the modern LMP cars, the, would you love to have a go in those? You know, the Audi, the diesel, the hybrid Toyota? Yes, I, I have to say I would love to. Um, I, I, I never got in the Audi R8, which I always had, you know, they kept, Audi kept saying to me, because I was racing in that soup, in the, uh, you know, the 600 horsepower Audi A4s and RS4s in America at the same time. So we're at the same races, and they kept saying, you must have a go in this R8, you've got to drive this R8. I'd love that, because everybody, I remember when Johnny Herbert first got in, he went, I mean, they all, everybody got out saying it's the best car they'd ever driven in their life. And I don't think they've actually improved. All they've done is make them work, run on diesel and other fuels, which made them more difficult to drive. And when you talk to them after that first year, they had a 2000 red band and nothing either side. I'm sure you guys knew that. And I'd had, I've got no desire to actually have a, a challenge. I want to get out there and drive a great car and enjoy it. And I'd love to have driven the R8 because I'd driven everything from a GT40 all the way through you know, the history of sports cars, which nobody else had done. But I never got in it, unfortunately. There's a challenge for us, something to set up. We've tried in the past, actually, to try and get you in an R8. I did so actually yeah. talk to one of you, probably, mm. I don't know who it was, ten, five years ago, and yes. said we could do a tremendous, you know, starting with the GT40, which I did drive, never race, because Ferrari wouldn't release me, but to drive a GT40 through to an R8, difficult now, because you're in another era again. But at that point, it would have been quite interesting. Mm. A quick question, Damien, our editor. Okay, um, all your great teammates in the past, we know how much respect you had for Ix and for Stuck and uh, others, but is there anyone that you raced against who stands out as the guy that you respected most? Um, <coughs> that's a really difficult... Nobody's ever asked me that. Typical editor. Well, he is the <laughs> editor. That's <laughs> the awkward, yeah, sorry. No, <laughs> you see what we're up against. Yes, I do. Um, I, I, can I answer that next week? <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I mean Jackie, who I raced against, and obviously with Ferraris and Alfa Romeos, I raced against him. I think he was the most difficult driver to drive against. He was totally fair. I mean, Beloff I raced against, but I didn't see that much of him. And he was a bit, and, and because he was very quick, but also he was a little bit erratic. Um, Hans Stuck I raced against a lot, but he only really became really good when he got in our team. He, I learned the other day he was brought into our team so that I could s straighten him out, I heard. He told me at dinner about six months ago, you know why you and I drove together? Because Porsche thought that you might be able to straighten me out. <laughs> He's still stupid, but anyway. So um, anyway, um, but I think Jackie, to be, Jackie Ix, to be honest, um, 
he was just such an, a complete driver. And I think you can have fast drivers and you know, they'll be quicker than you and you have to accept it in certain, certain ways. But I think Ix was all round, was just an amazing person, an amazing driver. He should have been a Formula One world champion in my opinion at the, you know, that, during that era. Um, yeah, no, I, I honestly would say it was him. Great man as well, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah great man for the sport. So, um, the movie Le Mans, McQueen. Uh, I, I've spoken to several people over time who who knew McQueen well, not so well, whatever, and and had as many different opinions. I think as as people I asked. Did what did you think of him? Did you did you like him? Did, was he was he difficult? Was he easy? Basically, I got on with him extremely well to the degree that I met him in Hollywood later on. He actually used to write letters. He never leaves Stephen McQueen where I let her. And I remember in my little motor accessory shop in Bogen, I used to receive notes from Steve sent from America, you know, in an envelope. And I've never kept them, of course. They'd be worth but a fortune now, wouldn't they? Pardon? They'd be worth a fortune, yeah. Bloody hell. <laughs> don't, don't get him on that. Don't get him no, on that. No. But I have to say, I got on with him extremely well. Everybody on the film, when I was with them, got on with them extremely well. He wasn't trying to upstage us because he was an actor and we were drivers. And he actually wanted to be what we were. His dream would have been to be a racing driver. And actually, he was damn good. Um, I'd got wheel to wheel with him a lot. I mean, we, Sifford and I used to take him through corners really fast through the bloody White House. And he got off at the end of one of them and he was white as his, as his face. And he got out and he said, you rotten bees, you know. And he, and he was white, he was as white as his face mask. And he said, uh, I'll get you back for that, which he did. But that's another story sometime. <laughs> but and, but he, 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 he went for it. He didn't back out of it, boy. He went for it. And every chance he could, he drove. And I never saw the wrong side of Steve. And um, as I say, I met him afterwards, and he, you know, used to come out in the desert and we ride bikes. And we went. He used, and I used to ride bikes on the Sunday when we weren't driving cars. Right. And I just got him like a house. And we actually shared a house for the last month of the film. Really? He and his family, and me. And of course, now that he's he's gone, of course, I get to know his son Chad moderately well. Mm -hmm. But now I think he was. I think he was good. I think he and Golf did so much for motorsport. And I think they. You know the, the the recognition of that era, particularly, and when you think what Gulf Oil, there's no other fuel manufacturer has ever had the exposure no, that Gulf Oil have had, and the and the, the, and the cult continues yeah, to this day, doesn't it? Hoyer watches, yeah. you know, it's astonishing, isn't it? Mm. Okay, um, sadly, and I mean this really sadly, we've run out of time because uh, Derek Bell coming to Motorsport Podcast from Florida via Africa. And he's probably going back to Florida. Who can blame him? But uh, what a shame uh, he's not here more often. Derek, well done. Fantastic. Fantastic entertainment. And I hope you all agree, uh, having uh, listened to us today. Tell your friends, especially if they'd like to sponsor us, the podcast, that is. Anyway, hello, Gulf. <laughs> um, Okay, a final reminder of our new subscription offer, because uh, it's important to us, as I said at the top of the show. Um, if you subscribe to Motorsport magazine this month, you will get Peter War's new book, Team Lotus, My View from the Pit Wall. Good book, very highly recommended. You can get this book, which is worth 19.99, when you subscribe for 12 or 24 editions of Motorsport magazine. It's available to new subscribers wherever in the world you are. Plus... All subscribers who uh, we have now, and new ones, can receive an enhanced digital copy free on their iPad. 
I presume you have an iPad, Mr. Bell? I do. Yeah, I thought you would. Okay, must get one myself. I feel rather left out, I must say. Uh, anyway, iPad or not, uh, log on to our uh, Motorsport Magazine website at motorsportmagazine.com or call us uh, at our office in London, 020 7349 8472. So let's hope uh, lots of you will, because uh, we work hard to produce the magazine every month, and our editor will be delighted to see some new subscribers coming up on the whatever they come up on these days. Anyway, uh, it's goodbye from us, goodbye from Nigel Roebuck, Ed Foster, Damien Smith, and uh, Derek, thank you very, very much indeed. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Motorsport magazine for the very best in motor racing.